0: Kamsutra actually does not mention the act of sex. The Kamsutra actually focuses purely on pleasure and foreplay. We wouldn't have been given a clitoris if it wasn't that we were meant to have pleasure. The Kamsutra also says that different types of women find their arousal at different parts of the night, depending on where the moon is in the sky. Today's world talks about it from a point of guilt, sin, and dirtiness. I have discovered this world that thought of it as utterly beautiful, as desirable, as the path to heaven. Okay, so the first thing to know is,
1: Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. Today's guest is Seema Anand. She is an acclaimed author, a TEDx speaker, and she's delved into the intriguing world of human desire and intimacy. I am so So excited for this conversation, you guys, because I have not done an episode like this and we all want to have really good sex. So this is going to be all about the art of seduction. And with her book named The Art of Seduction, she has unlocked the secrets to the ancient and timeless craft of seduction, offering insights that captivate our senses and intellect alike.
0: Seema, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so, you guys don't even understand. I'm so excited to have this conversation because when I listened to your TEDx speech, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. So let's just start off with your background. What do I need to understand about you, your childhood, your background to understand the woman that, and when I say woman, you guys, if you're not watching this, she's beautiful. What do I need to understand about your background
0: to understand the woman that I'm looking at right now? So I think, uh, okay, so we're going to skip most of my background because I'm 61. It would take a long time to give you all of the details. But um, I come from a family where I think that um, for the last four generations, all the women in our family have been sort of professional women. They've worked, they've had fairly high-flying jobs. Um, And so I think... I was lucky enough to be born into a family that where I didn't have to fight for my rights as a woman. And I think that um, makes a huge difference. I mean, I was born in 1962. Most of my friends were still having to argue with their parents about wearing, I don't know, sleeveless clothes. I was already sort of at that point where you didn't have to worry about whether, um, you know, whether you wanted to live with your boyfriend or whether you do you know what I mean like those basic mm. things that a lot of um our mothers would have gone through, or even women of my generation went through, so um I guess I came along feeling quite comfortable into this world, and then I stepped out into the world and realized that women don 't have the same status as I thought they did, and so the fight then began um I think that the where my work is today, I think that actually started with my understanding of the fact that stories are the most powerful tool of influence. When, when we tell a story, we create the identity of people in society. So when you tell stories about how a good woman um, never raises her voice, a good woman doesn't make herself too obvious. You've kind of position the identity of the good woman who's always quiet and silent and somebody who won't stand up for herself. The good woman who, even though her husband beats her up, she never says anything to dishonor him outside. She's such Mm -hmm. a good woman. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I realized a very long time ago that the stories we tell establish our identity. That's what actually decides what our role is going to be. And gradually, I realized that we never tell stories of a woman's right to her own body. Mm. Her body and her pleasure always is somebody else's property. <laughs> it belongs to the man that she's going to be with or her parents who are going to look after her when she is a virgin living at home. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. her pleasure and her body always belong to other people. and I set off. I set out to see what are the stories that we had silenced because I figured that there must have been some stories at some point. We wrote the Kama Sutra. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that I can't find these stories now? So I set off to try and find those stories. And initially I had thought I was just going to write a paper on it, 5,000 words, you know, mm-hmm. move on. That was 23 years ago, Carice. I got into this subject and the more I study it, the deeper I get into it. And the more I realize it's like peeling away um, an onion layer by layer. Mm -hmm. It's you find the next, the, the next little tiny point that opens up a new world for you. And then you move on to the next one. And basically I think where I have arrived at this stage is that I am today talking about sexuality, pleasure, um, Seduction, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. from a very different standpoint, you know, whereas today's world talks about it from a point of guilt, sin, and dirtiness. Mm -hmm. I have discovered this world that thought of it as utterly beautiful, as desirable, as the path to heaven, Mm -hmm. as the balance of the universe.
1: I love that definition. Because I'm a firm believer that, you know, sex is energy and, you know, why would we have such capabilities of having pleasure if it wasn't meant to be used? So let's just start with the history, because when I was listening to your TEDx uh, talk, I found it very, very intriguing on the history of the art of seduction. So where would we start if somebody said, "Okay, what do you mean by the history? How would you explain that to them?
0: So, uh, the Kam Sutra, as most people know it, uh, isn't just the one book. It's, it was written in about 300 and something AD. And I always like to tell people this very fascinating point that at the time that the Kam Sutra is being written, at about the same time in 325 AD, the very first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church is set up. Mm. And they literally start. By talking about the sin that is attached to the body. So by 342 AD, they have banned, they passed their first law banning oral and anal sex because that is just for pleasure, that is not for reproduction. And at the same point, I mean, literally the same time in history across the oceans. A man, we think it's a man called Vatsyayin. Personally, I believe it was a bunch of women who wrote the Kama Sutra. But let's say this man called Vatsyayin is sitting there on the banks of the River Ganges writing the Kama Sutra, talking about the benefits of pleasure, how pleasure is the path to heaven. And I think that somewhere in between, we have all kind of got stuck in this twilight zone in between the two viewpoints. But what's interesting, Carissa, is that The Kamsutra is not the first text written on the subject. Vatsyad says that he has not written anything new. He's taken material from books written about a thousand years before, and he's pretty much copied and pasted everything that he knows about pleasure from that. He's taken the research from before and put it down. So clearly the ancient world understood the importance and the beauty of pleasure. Mm-hmm. of both the pleasure of men as well as women, specifically of women. Because it says that unless the woman is fully pleasured, um, the couple or two people are not going to ever experience it in its entirety. So, I agree with that. The pleasure of, yeah, absolutely. Being women, we know that for a fact. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, it kind of goes back to the idea that there was a time in our society. Not in living memory, for sure, but certainly at a time in society when um, there was a very different idea of sex, or sexuality, of pleasure. I think what's happened along the way, unfortunately, is that society has changed and things develop, evolve according to the needs of the people in power. So things have changed. But yes, basically when when the Kam Sutra was written, and again what I'd like to say that even after it is written, it's not the only book of its kind. there are several thousand versions of the Kam Sutra because basically, every king who came to the throne of every tiny little kingdom, India for the longest time, was a collection of small kingdoms. Every king who ever came to the throne of his kingdom would commission a copy of the Kam Sutra because they believed that if two people can share mutually, truly mutually pleasurable intimacy, that relationship becomes stable. If relationships all start to become stable, society becomes stable. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And when society becomes stable, the kingdom is stable. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that it was so important that They believed that the stability, the the safety, the security of the kingdom depended on good sex, (laughs) as opposed to today, where they believe that it's the arms race. Yes. And honestly, the Buddhist Kama Sutras, which were written um, several hundred years before the Hindu Kama Sutra, which is the one that we know of and talk about, Mm -hmm. that actually also lists several battle formations that were based on lovemaking positions. Hmm. So they did take it very seriously. As far as they were concerned, this was an extremely important subject.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. But you know, there's a lot of research that shows that when you have stability in relationships, especially when it comes to men, um, testosterone levels are down violence is down. Um, there's more stability in neighborhoods and, um, you know, population. So that makes sense to me. So when it comes to foreplay, let's talk about this because I feel like a lot of, a lot of men nowadays are learning from porn and, There's a lot of population, including myself, who I don't feel like there's anything necessarily wrong with porn, but I feel like it teaches people um, things that are not pleasurable for women, especially it teaches men that, you know, when you go hard and fast, that's what's pleasurable when really for a lot of women, it's the opposite. And a lot of women who I talk to myself included need foreplay in order for arousal and to achieve orgasm. What is the importance that foreplay plays when it comes to Kama Sutra and the art of seduction?
0: Okay. So the first thing to know is, and this is going to be really surprising, the Kama Sutra actually does not mention the act of sex. It has a small short chapter on positions. It doesn't talk about the act of sex. It doesn't tell you how you should thrust. It doesn't tell you um, how much semen should be coming out. Like the ancient Chinese the ancient Japanese texts talk about it. The, The Kama Sutra actually focuses purely on pleasure and foreplay. So section two, the Kama Sutra is made up of seven sections. The rest, okay, let me start with a couple of basic things about the Sutra. The Sutra was written for men. So it is not written for women at all, because in 300 and something AD, women were not taught how to read or write. This is a book written for men of wealth and leisure. It is a book written to teach them how to live their best lives. So the book, One entire section tells them how to build their house, how to decorate their house, how many minor birds and parrots they should keep, how long they should take being massaged, and how long they should take in the bath, and so on. The second section talks about pleasure, the arts of pleasure. The third section talks about how to find the perfect wife. The next one is on how to marry the perfect wife. The fifth section is on how to seduce another man's wife. (laughs) <laughs> um, which was a political necessity because if another man was important, you got to him through his wife. Um, mm-hmm. The sixth section is the rules that were written around courtesans because this is at a time when um, courtesanery was legal. Mm-hmm. And so there was a ministry for it, but the rules were, I mean, they were just so complex and so diverse. So this the sixth section actually lists out all the rules for courtesans The seventh section, which is a bit of a pointless section, talks about love potions. I mean, you know, typical witch's brew kind of thing. It's it's a really, it's not a very useful section at all. Mm -hmm. The second section, which is the only section that interests me, it talks about pleasure. And it talks about, this is the only section that addresses men and women both. And Vatsyant says in the introduction of the Kama Sutra that people have said to him, how silly you are, to address a book which is a scientific treatise to women because, and this I quote, women and every kind of science is mutually incompatible. So what a waste of time to address this to the women. Wow. And he says that, I mean, basically, he says that the women are actually much better at it. They understand it instinctively. Um, men have to be taught. But he says also how silly to say that women should not be taught this, but then be told that they have to practice it. Mm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he, he he makes a good point. So here, what is really interesting is that the entire section on pleasure talks about foreplay. It tells you about the different things that you should do during foreplay. And I was having this conversation with somebody else where, I was saying that, you know, a lot of people today, like you said, porn is what people are learning from. Porn is an incomplete narrative. They don't have the time to go through 40 minutes of trying to arouse the woman, which is the bare minimum that a woman is going to need. What do you do for 40 minutes? You know, like, okay, somebody says they nibbled on my neck for about a minute and a half, and then they've moved to a couple of other parts. What do you do after three minutes? So, it starts with the fact that how do you begin the evening together or that time together? The person has come in from, one person has come in from work. Um, their head is full of whatever happened at work. You sit down together. How do you expect to just jump into bed and have the most mind blowing sex when your head is somewhere else? So the first thing was that you started with conversation. You, had the right kind of conversation in the in the case of comes with it says you tell each other naughty or gossipy stories, basically it says that when you play cards or when you gossip it's the only time when time seems seems to bl- block itself out like you forget how much time you spent doing that because it's sort of so all consuming, mm-hmm. so you tell each other stories which makes the other person gasp, drop their um their God, and basically shift from whatever they were thinking earlier to coming to the present with you right now. And interestingly, it says that you finish your lovemaking in exactly the same way, where you finish with talking to each other. You tell each other stories, but not the same kind, because when you're starting, you want to arouse each other. It's different kinds of conversation, different types of stories. When you finish, you're now trying to tell the person that this was a you're trying to tell your partner that this was a good thing that you did that this was um a happy place to be in, and so you tell them nice, loving stories because it says that how you finish your love making depends on how quickly it defines how quickly your partner will come back to bed the next time
1: Fourteen minutes. I feel like a lot of men really are so, falling short of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's get to the next point. Now, it talks about how you start with um, different types of kisses. It tells you how you start with, you know, the usual kind of the, the kind of things that we all talk about. But then it takes it one step further. I just love the fact that it said that lovemaking was supposed to be joyous. So you entertained your beloved. Basically, every man of any kind of standing would have drawing materials in their bedroom and you would make a portrait of your beloved. And the idea was that you had eye-on-eye contact with that person Mm -hmm. for that length of time. Like you said, everything doesn't have to be hot and hard and fast. It's about how you build it up slowly. They talk about how... um, You played games together. It it says that you need to juggle for your partner. So you entertain her with different things. You entertain her with stories. You kiss her in between. Even little things like love bites. I mean, the love bite or the hickey. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a culture that actually managed to make that into something really romantic. So it says that love bites were a skill that had to be learned. And. You didn't, I mean, there were eight different types of love bites and each one had its own message, its own occasion. You had to learn how to leave those shapes of love bites on your lover, because this is a courtly society, you would show it off. But what I love is that the most skilled love bites, it wasn't just that, okay, I'm with you. I am totally turned on. I'm going to gnaw on you. That's Mm -hmm. not how it worked. This was an art form. Okay, so the 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 most exciting love bite, or no, the most skilled love bite was called the bindu or the dot, where you literally took enough of the flesh that you could pinch just between two teeth. So you leave the, a mark that's the size of a sesame seed on your lover, but then, but then having done that, you now created a little necklace of those marks. So you kind of went evenly placing those wherever it was, whether it was on the thigh, whether it was on the side of the waist, wherever it was. And I used to always giggle about this thinking, well, you know, can you imagine kind of you start off and you say, okay, now I need to measure this out. Now I do mm-hmm. it over here. Now I measure this out. And it, it, what happens when you go wrong? Do you just start again? But basically the, the, the back story to this is that all this physical contact is giving the woman a chance to be aroused more but the technicality of it is holding the man back from getting too aroused too quickly okay you know so i know that it all sounds really really prescriptive Mm -hmm. for instance it says that as the moon moves in its phases with every phase of the moon your erogenous zones move around your body for both men and women so on one day It's over here. This is what you're stimulating for best sex. One day it's the eyes. That's what you're kissing for your best sex. Then the next day it's the breasts, it's the cheeks, whatever. It sounds very prescriptive, but I think that within this framework of prescription, because if you're told that this is a ritual, you tend to want to do it. Otherwise, you go back to the same old monotony every single time. Mm -hmm. So within the framework of prescription, it gave you the chance to be really creative. You know, when you say the sky's the limit, frankly, it's too much. Yeah, When you talk about energy and there's no boundary to your energy, you don't have the benefit of that energy because it dissipates. Similarly, with creativity, when you have a, a framework um, of prescribed rituals, you can get really creative within that.
1: I love that. And that was actually going to be one of my questions was about the moon phases you know, I'm a firm believer, you know, I'm, I'm super intuitive and um, I do my own rituals during the full moon. Is it better to have sex during full moon energy? Is there something about pleasure and sex that creates more powerful energy? What are your thoughts on that?
0: So I am a huge believer in the power of the moon. I think that every single phase of the moon has an impact. On us. Because you have to remember that the moon doesn't just mechanically go from one phase to the other. As it moves, everything else around us shifts as well. The Mm -hmm. earth has moved in the meantime. We're in a different place. So we are accessing different energies from the atmosphere. The moon is a little bit further or a little bit closer according to seasons. There's just the most incredible energy that we get from the moon. The Kamsutra also says that different types of women find their arousal at different parts of the night, depending on where the moon is in the sky. So it's not just that it's the fifth day of the moon, but is it the early evening moon? Is it the midnight moon? Is it the two o'clock in the morning moon? You know, it's, it has a huge impact on our um our, our sexual energies. As we start by saying, for me, for you, for the ancient texts, pleasure is known as a shakti, it's known as an energy. Mm-hmm. And when that energy rises, it is it is an energy, it's like a rush. But then it, okay, I should uh Most people think, well, if I'm raising my energy, I'm doing it for this and I'm doing it for that. Pleasure is not just about sex. Pleasure encompasses everything that makes you come alive. Okay, so that's your energy. The other thing to remember is that when energy rises, it's not like a fountain that goes through you. It's a pulse. It's your breath. It pulsates up. It goes down. It depends on how you are able to bring it up. You work on your energy. You work on your breath. You shift it around your body with your breath. We have 52 intersections of energy in our body. When we are at complete pleasure, all of those intersections of energy have come alive. Hmm. They're tingling with life. That's what makes everything so incredible. That's what makes that rush of energy to your head. That's what makes the orgasm really amazing.
1: Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader. Now it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball, telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues, such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. Okay, so if energy is a concept we're talking about with pleasure and karma sutra, is it is there anything within the scope of this belief system that says there are certain energies and certain people that you should not be having pleasure with? Or do you feel that anybody is capable of having a
0: connection and having pleasurable intimacy? So the Kam Sutra itself is a technical book. It's a treatise. So it's very, it's sort of formatted. It doesn't give you emotions, but all the other texts around it, uh, because like I said, there are thousands of them that were written, that, thousands that were inspired by the vocabulary and the metaphors of the Kam Sutra. So coming to the idea of whether there are energies that suit you or not, I think that there will always be some energies that just don't do well for you. Mm-hmm. I think that there's no way of defining it, unfortunately. I think it is something that you intuitively understand. Just like, just like you understand your own energy is not the same every day, You are a different person every single day. In the same way, so is everybody else. So energies are very fluid. I think you might go through a long period of finding somebody really annoying. I think if that is your first instinct, that something is not right, your instinct is correct. Follow that instinct. I agree. I I think people don't give their instinct enough credit. Mm mm-hmm. um, I know that, again, we have a prescriptive paragraph on you shouldn't have sex on such and such a day. You shouldn't have sex on such and such a day. But I think, again, those were guidelines being set out to, you know, eventually, like I said, there's a framework being put out. But when it comes to partners, I know also people feel that if they have sex with too many people, that they take on somebody else's energy. I think that If you have sex with one person, one time, the way that the female brain works, I don't know about men. Um, I mean, I cannot say for sure about men, but certainly the way the female brain works, that excitement of being cuddled, of being held, we become attached. Mm -hmm. You cling. So it's not that that person's energy is not good for you. It's our energy that is clinging because that's how we're made. Yes. So hence, I would say you need to be really careful that Mm -hmm. you don't. And you know what? No matter how much you think this is just going to be for fun, you do get to a point when you are physically close to somebody, you get to a point where your emotions get totally involved. Mm -hmm. Yes, it will also pass, but you will go through the pain of that involvement. So my advice is. Follow your instinct. Don't give in to every single thing. Um, And yeah, I mean, fantasizing is also a great thing to do. I mean, if you think you're really into somebody, give yourself time to fantasize about them. If the fantasy is still there after a while, Mm
1: -hmm. then
0: explore it further.
1: I was just telling a client exactly this, you know, it's fine to have fun and there's nothing wrong with that. But just know that after some time, there's a good possibility that there's some type of emotional attachment that can form. And that's just our neurochemistry, especially with women and oxytocin. It's it's inevitable that it might happen and you have to be prepared for that. So let's talk to all my single ladies out there because um, your girl is single, very single for a long time. And I have... I have been sex free for about two years, not exactly by choice it's uh the the pool of choices where I live is very limited. <laughs> um, so for us ladies who are single and want to delve into the art of seduction, what are some things that we can do? I know in your book you talked about you know sense and how you know that can matter. What are some tangible things that we may be able to do in our lives to attract a partner or seduce a partner?
0: Okay, so I think the first thing to remember is that you think we think of seduction as an event. It's something that you do to somebody. Seduction is actually, as I've often said, it's a state of mind. When you are at that point, when you feel that way about yourself. And a lot of us don't, unfortunately. I find it incredible, but most women will look in the mirror and no matter how amazing they are, they will notice all the things that are wrong with them. And the moment you start picking out all the things that are wrong with you, um, you're no longer in that space that makes you carefree, happy and Mm self-loving. So I think that, There's a few things that we need to break down over here. One is that you do need to, I know it's a hackneyed, well-said phrase that you need to learn how to love yourself. But the thing is that you do need to love yourself because the moment you go out somewhere thinking, the moment you put out a vibe, the moment you feel less about yourself, you put out a certain vibe. And everybody can pick that vibe up. Just like when other people are being really desperate, we can pick that up. Mm-hmm. Other people see that about you. They, they, It comes across in the tonal quality of our voice. It comes across in how um, we laugh, the things that we say, the things that we pick up on. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's a long process. But just saying that this is somewhere that you need to start. The other thing is that when you do get to that point, and we all have it within us to feel good about ourselves, you get to that point, you feel good. You have to remember that when you're attracting people around you, you're going to attract all sorts. The creeps are going to come in as well, Mm -hmm. because that's just how it is. You are attracting everybody. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's not mm-hmm. that my energy is such and hence only fabulous people will be attracted to me. If you're fabulous, everybody's going to want to be with you. Everybody's going to be want to have what you have. Mm-hmm. So you will attract everybody. The next thing I've learned over time is that the, the creeps are more vocal and articulate than the nice guys. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So they are the ones that you will hear more. I agree with that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're just more omnipresent. Um, It's not that the others aren't there. They're just there a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I think finally, I know that this is, again, something that people say, and it doesn't sound right when it's said, but you do have to decide. What sort of person? I'm not talking about material wealth. I'm not saying, okay, I mean, clearly none of us want to go off with somebody who's sort of in a really bad place because, well, that doesn't make sense. But Mm -hmm. you need to understand for yourself what sort of person you want. What becomes more important to you and what becomes less important to you? You've noticed, I'm sure, Uh, creates that you know when you're thinking of something you have this idea in your head and you think i really want to do this i really want to do this and suddenly all these opportunities come up and you're like Mm -hmm. oh my god i was thinking of this and that door opened up and that door opened up so they say that at any given time in tantra they say that at any given time your brain is picking up or has the capacity to pick up about i don't know five million stimuli There are things happening around you all the time. We barely pick up one, two, maybe 10 things. Mm -hmm. But the moment you focus on something, you start to notice those things better. I realized that we never, ever really focus on the sort of person that we want to be with. We think about it. And. We kind of flutter in our head thinking about it because it's like, yeah, I really want a partner. I want somebody who would be really nice to me. So I I did this exercise with a friend of mine once and she kept saying, "I, I need a guy. And I said, okay, let's actually work this out. What kind of guy do you want? And she said, I want a guy who will treat me like a princess. And I said to her, what exactly do you mean when you say I want to be treated like a princess? What is that in your head? Is it somebody who's buying you expensive clothes is it somebody who's taking you to expensive places for lunches and dinners is it somebody who's sitting at home and i don't know um having a quiet drink with you at home and then massage, massaging your feet at the end i don't know you know what is it in your head that you see yourself wanting to do and so we worked this through and she decided, and she felt a little embarrassed saying this, but she basically decided that she wanted to be going to gorgeous places and wanted to be shown off, you know, wearing her lovely clothes, being in these wonderful places. So that, you know, she was part of the high life. Mm -hmm. It's really bizarre, but that's exactly the kind of guy who walked into her life. Mm. She was with him for a longish time. Now, he kept saying to her, I'm married, but we're just cohabiting. I plan to leave my wife. I plan to leave my wife. But when her idea extended to now I want you to be over here. Now I don't want you to be doing this with somebody else, etc." That wasn't there for her. She would sort of manifested what she wanted. And I think a lot of times we, we really don't give it enough thought. I've discovered that when you really, really, really want something, you have to understand first what it is that you want. Mm-hmm. You have to feel it in the pit of your stomach. Because you get one solution at a time. It doesn't, it's not as though, oh, but I want this and this and this and this, and you know, everything just kind of flows by. It doesn't work like that.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't even really know exactly what they want. Just like you said, they may have like an idea of what they don't want or maybe an idea of I want a good looking guy and I want to have good sex and I want to have financial stability. But what does that mean? Because the universe will often give you what you want, but you have to be specific And I'm a firm believer the vibes that you put out are the vibes that you're going to attract back. And that can work in your favor or against you. And, you know, we are distracted a lot. We live in an age of social media um, that's changed a lot of different things for us. How do you feel like when you're talking about the art of seduction and thinking about the history of it and how it was written and you know, really develop during such different times in the world. How can we apply that in modern times? Does it still apply in modern times?
0: So I think that sex and pleasure and orgasms and intimacy are always going to be relevant. They're always going to apply in any time. I think, as I said at the beginning, the the thing that changed for me when I started to study the Kamsutra was that gradual shift where you went from thinking of this as something that you felt guilty about like if i was self-pleasuring it was something that i had to do in the quiet very quickly get it out the way and never talk about it because it was a bad thing um i think it shifted the vocabulary in my head for me and i think that's where we need to be going we are So, I mean, we've got generations of DNA telling us that this is bad, it's ugly, it's sinful. And if you think about something as bad, ugly and sinful, how is it going to make you feel after you've done it? Let's be honest.
1: Yeah, good point.
0: Um, You know, when you think of something as bad, when you think you've done something bad, you're never going to be like, this was amazing. There's always going to be this guilt factor in your brain. So. For me, my entire work is focused on providing a slightly different vocabulary for people. Just that little shift which says, this is beautiful, it's a thing of beauty, it's natural, it's created by the Almighty for your pleasure. Otherwise, well, we wouldn't have been given a clitoris if it wasn't. That we were yeah. meant to have pleasure, right? we wouldn't have been exactly. given those nerves that attach from our breasts to our vagina if we were not meant to get a sensation from that it's just it's just that shift of vocabulary. I think that it's extremely relevant. I think that particularly in today's day and time, with so much pornography, with so much social media giving us all sorts of really weird messages with So many people, take, for instance, the Kardashians, okay? I was just thinking, they have made, they've become so famous, they've become so wealthy from doing stuff that, as a feminist, it goes against every grain in my body. Mm -hmm. But with every other young girl looking out and watching them, why should she want to do anything differently? Mm -hmm. She can see that the more plastic they pump into their body, the more attention they get. The more attention they get, the more money they get. The more money they get, the more famous and more comfortable they become. And it's a a cycle. They start with even more. Why would any girl want to be different? So we are uh, are combating quite a lot of crap out there. But yeah, I I think that it is extremely relevant because it all goes back to this overused word, self-love. But really, if you break it down, it's so important because it is literally about saying, um, "I am fabulous." I love myself. Not just saying it out loud, but actually believing it in the pit of your stomach. You know, when you're like, "Yeah, I'm good." <laughs> um, there's a difference. There's a difference. Yeah,
1: I agree. And that, I, I'm, I'm working on that. I think that I'm in a way better place in my life. My birthday is actually tomorrow. Thirty-eight. Ooh, and happy birthday! Thank you. And there's a part of me that I'm getting to the age where I'm like, wow, time's going by really quick. But then I'm also in the mind frame of, okay, when you're in your 50s and 60s, you're going to wish that you would have stayed present. And so I'm really trying to focus on self-acceptance and and enjoying where I'm at because I'll never get back yesterday. And I know that's kind of morbid to think, but that's really where my, my mind shift has been recently. And, you know, I would love to find a partner who doesn't, but I'm also very self sufficient and comfortable, but that's my safety net. And so I definitely am trying to find the balance here. And one thing when I was listening to your Ted talk that I found really interesting was the 64 arts of seduction. Obviously, you know, 64 was a lot to go through, but if you can pick one or two out of that 64, that would be the most important for people to understand.
0: What were those two okay, be? so yeah, so these are the famous sixty four skills now the Kama mm-hmm. Sutra, and unlike what most people think they're not sixty four different ways to have sex. They were literally so okay, so here's the kam Sutra believed, so the sixty four skills are so diverse it's everything from singing, dancing, um playing musical instruments to um, understanding about plants to understanding about gemstones to metallurgy woodwork. I mean, it's a huge range. The idea behind it was that the more diverse a personality you are, the more desirable you become. It makes you a more exciting person. It makes you a more interesting person. If you can walk into a party and talk about 10 different things, everybody has something to say to you and chat to you about. If you are focused on just the one thing that makes you slightly less interesting. Um, And I think that's the basis of the 64 skills. Now, Mm -hmm. for me, I'll tell you the ones that I have thought um, have worked the best for me. But again, like I said, we change every day and every time. I think through time, things change for us as well. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I think is really important right now is one of them is botany. You learn about all the different plants and you learn about uh, what is good for you, what is medicinal, what is not good for you, etc. And I know it sounds like a weird thing to say, well, there's a great skill for your next, um, um, you know, your next sort of date. Mm -hmm. But it is. I think that today a lot of people are, choosing partners who are more excited in the outdoors they're they're more into people that they can do things with Mm -hmm. rather than you know the usual typical kind of let's have a candlelit romantic dinner it's like can I go hiking together can I yes you know can I go bowling do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so yeah I think that if you are going to go and um get yourself equipped for the dating world out there. I think that you need to invest in maybe becoming more interested in activity dates because there just seems to activity clubs and activity dates. Because I think that's where, at this point in time, that's where it's happening.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. I think if you can spend time with somebody and do activities with them, you'll really know. You'll know very quickly if you're compatible <laughs> or not, especially when it doesn't involve alcohol and when you can be outdoors and do things, you'll, you'll see very quickly. Um, Sima, for you, you know, I still can't believe you're 64, but in your 60, 61. Oh, 61, 61. Okay. But yeah, still, sorry, 60, 61. Even, <laughs> even 61, you look amazing. I mean, you are so beautiful in your Thank 61 you. years of living. What have you learned about the art of seduction and what advice would you give to your younger self?
0: So I think that I would go back and say so much to my younger self. Like you just said a little while ago that you'll never be what you are today, tomorrow. you never get yesterday back. I grew up in a time when um, society didn't think very hard. They they didn't think very much about being um, judgy about young girls. They told you very happily, you're too dark, you're too fat look at what you look like. Your hair doesn't look right. Um, I believed a lot of that. I grew up believing that I was um, really not attractive. I grew up believing that only very attractive women deserve love you know, just sort of talk to you on a loop. It was things that people said, oh, look at that woman. She's not at all pretty. And yet look at how much her husband loves her. So you grew up believing that you weren't worthy of love because you weren't good looking enough. And I sabotaged my relationships for the longest time. I sabotaged them. Whenever I thought something was going well, this thing would creep into my head that I'm not worthy. I'm not beautiful enough. Hence, I'm not worthy. But so-and-so is interested in me. Clearly, they're not really worthwhile either. Mm -hmm. And I sabotaged a lot of my relationships. And I think that that's what I would go back and try and explain to my younger self. That's what I've done with my children, tried to do with my daughter, is to try and make sure that they understand that they are incredible the way that they are. And as they are, not everybody's going to find you amazing, but enough people will, because we don't think everybody's amazing. So, you know, that was the other thing that you, you kind of, you were striving for some form of perfection. And this is something that someone taught me. Sort of, I, I'm a storyteller by profession. Mm-hmm. And you strive for perfection and i would go up on stage and everybody around me the the entire audience would be absolutely mesmerized they'd be looking at me so intently listening smiling i'd pick the one face that looked discontent and focus on that person and try and bring them back into this area of loving me and it never happened i'd come off the stage having used up all my energy on that one person feeling shit about myself and i'd say That went so badly. And I manifested it. And then I had this friend who said to me, never, ever walk off the stage saying that went badly. Focus on the people who love you and just focus on them. Because you can't, everybody's not going to love you and you can't make everybody happy. And, you know, I've taken that as life advice. I literally only focus on people that I think are going to give me that love or that attention or that caring. And yes, it always hurts if somebody doesn't like you, but I measure my growth against how long I hurt for. Am I still focusing on it a week later or have I forgotten about it after about three days? Yeah. And that's how I measure my growth.
1: Oh, I love that. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that to me before. That's a really, really great point. Um, i I have found that over the years my discontentment of my hurt or my pain becomes less and less and yeah i guess i can measure that as growth um seema thank you so much for your continued work in this area i find it absolutely needed and fascinating and you just give me such high priestess energy i love your energy it's beautiful um I will link everything for everyone to find you, but what are you up to these days and where can people find you? Where do you hang out at the most?
0: So I am primarily on Instagram. I am on all the different platforms because you're supposed to be. So yes, there is a podcast. Yes, there is YouTube and Facebook. Um, And I just started my um, TikTok channel two weeks ago. So that's really tiny and not very sort of, um, it's not very well populated at the moment. But Instagram is currently where most of my work is. And um, yeah, I think that aside from whatever you find over there, literally just every now and then go out and just explore yourself. You know, like whenever you listen to whatever I'm saying on Instagram, just go out and explore that in your own life and see if you can find a way to articulate your feelings because we just don't articulate our feelings And I think that's where we fall short because um, there's a very well known, um, there was a very well known man called uh, Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti, a theosophist. And he had this incredible um, meditation routine where he said that our brain is like a room that is filled with butterflies, which are fluttering all the time. So, there's not enough noise to drown everything out, but there's enough from the flutter of the wings to distort everything. And he says that the flutter of the wings, again, it's not enough to block what you're seeing, but enough to distort what you see. And he said, it's because we have so many thoughts, unfinished thoughts in our brain. They all hum around our brain like millions of these butterflies and they distort everything that we see and we hear because we can't concentrate or we can't focus. And he used to say that every night before you go to sleep, take ten thoughts that you started and just think them through to the end. Just finish the thought. You don't have to come up with a solution. Just finish the thought. It lays it down to rest and leaves more space in your mind.
1: I love that. Thank you so much, Seema. And Just for everything that you do, your continued work, everyone, please go follow her. She's amazing. Get her book, listen to her podcast. I'm going to link it for you guys below. And thank you once again for tuning in to Diary of an Empath.